Well, as you take your Bibles and turn, swipe, and click your way to 1 Peter chapter 4, we had a great time yesterday here with the What Did You Expect uh, video stream marriage conference. Paul Tripp led us through some principles for our marriages. It's a great blessing. I wish that more of you could have or would have participated in it. But he made a great statement at the, toward the beginning. He was talking about how when we think through our marriages and we approach the Bible, we wish that the Bible was subject-oriented, that it was topically arranged, that we, that we would prefer that, that many of us would love to be able to have our Bibles and down the side have little tabs that have all of the different topics that we want to learn about, but that God hasn't arranged the Bible that way, that God's story as he unfolds his will and his revelation, is not topical. It is theological with applicational annotations. That's how he put it. Meaning that we draw application from it, but that the best, the best use of the Bible, its real value is not in coming to it and, and, and reading just the passages on marriage. And that's the example he gave. He said, if you just come to the Bible and you pick out all the passages on marriage and try to reconstruct your marriage according to those passages, you're not getting the view of God and the scripture and of sin that you need to build your marriage. And of course, I wanted to stand up and shout because I'm thinking, yes, exactly. And I thought to myself, yes, that's why I preach the way I preach. It's why I come to the Bible the way I come to it, is to allow the Bible to say what it says and never make it say something it doesn't say. Because God is, through the scriptures, through the letter of 1 Peter even, building your marriages, your relationships with non-Christians, your relationships with your children, all of the various aspects of life come under the revealed word of God, regardless of where it is we are reading and teaching. That's the wonder of Scripture. Now, having said that, Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. This is our text today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let, a, uh, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord Jesus, we come today in the midst of busy and hurried lives. Even already today, our hearts have strayed. Already we have failed to trust you. Already today we have sinned against others and against you. We confess these things to you now. And we come before you because we are found in you. And your grace beckons us. We come before you because your blood was shed for every moment. You have forgiven us. You have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. You have empowered us to call others to turn from sin and to know forgiveness. 
And so we follow after you today as your disciples, as your people. And now help us to grasp your word well. Amen. The letter of 1 Peter makes it clear that God's people are exiles, that we are not at home. And 1 Peter makes it clear that we should expect to suffer evil while in exile. And 1 Peter explains to us why the suffering is necessary, and Peter instructs us in how to respond to it how to respond to hostility in light of eternity. And so Peter begins now to close his letter with a summary word to us about suffering. He calls this suffering of hostility, and remember, that is Peter's view of suffering. Peter, when he speaks of suffering, isn't speaking of suffering in general. He's not speaking of the difficulties of life and trials in general. The Bible has much to say about those things, but Peter is speaking specifically of suffering evil, evil that is done against us because of the Lord, because of our faith in him. And so Peter calls this suffering, the suffering of hostility, a fiery trial. Now, it may be hard for us in a culture where Christianity for a long time has been acceptable to relate to a fiery trial. We may know peace and prosperity, at least generally, but for God's people throughout human history, this exile is a fiery trial. And it is for us too. It is a painful ordeal. Peter writes this letter to arm us and to empower us to endure the hostility, to pass through this sojourn. And so he gives us here then four ways to respond to the fiery trial. Four ways to respond to the fiery trial. First of all, let us face the fiery trial without surprise. Let us face the fiery trial without surprise, verse 12. Contrary to such claims that trusting God automatically means that you will be healthy, that you will have prosperity, that you will, the word is thrown around very loosely, no blessing. Contrary to all of these claims that having faith in God automatically means health and wealth, Peter says, don't be surprised when you suffer evil. Don't be taken aback. It's not unexpected. Don't be surprised when you face hostility, when you're rejected because of your faith in Jesus. There is no way that suffering for Jesus' name should take us off guard. The Lord Jesus himself even warned us in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you, in other words, if you belonged to the world, if you were part of its system, its view of life and right and wrong, If you belonged to it, if you weren't exiles, the world would love you as its own. It would love you as its own possession. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Jesus isn't saying that every moment that we interact with the world is going to be full of hatred toward us. We know that. But Jesus is saying that ultimately, when everything is stripped away, the world will hate those who follow him. 
This word chose, by the way, but I chose you out of the world, it is the exact same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, to the elect exiles, to the chosen exiles, same word. Peter is writing to those to whom Jesus has chosen out of the world. That Jesus even said, the world's going to hate you. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I, I tend to want to say we shouldn't make blanket statements like all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But I guess if you're the Apostle Paul and you're writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you can make a blanket statement if you want to. And the Apostle Paul says that all, indeed, truly, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that the New Testament is pretty clear that those who are going to follow Jesus are going to be persecuted and shouldn't be surprised when we face sneers, rejection, insults. But this fiery trial of the world's hatred has taken us off guard. I think it has. I think that's why we see so many churches cracking right now under the pressure of the culture. Because for centuries in our culture, Judeo-Christian ethics, Judeo-Christian morality was acceptable, was even respectable. In ways, those, that kind of morality was even equated with civilization, what it meant to be civilized. And yes, in many ways, it was a religiosity. It was a facade. But in the public realm, it was still respectable. It was kind of a social Christianity. But our culture, as you well know, has steadily become more like the culture of the New Testament in that Christianity, the Christian faith, stands in sharper and sharper contrast with the world's morality. In the New Testament, it was polytheism, the idolatry of many gods. In our culture, it is secularism, which is the idolatry of no god. But what a testimony to the divine authorship of the Bible that its truth and its power for God's people is sufficient for every age and against every worldview, whatever worldview we face. And 1 Peter speaks to Crossway Fellowship and the churches of the Pacific Northwest with the same clarity and power that it did to the churches of the Roman provinces in the first century. There is nothing strange about this suffering. Don't be taken off guard. Do not be surprised as if something weird was happening to you, as if something unexpected. Peter has already made the point that we are simply following in Jesus' steps, that we has already blazed a trail through the suffering of evil. And like Jesus, this, this suffering, this rejection comes upon us for our testing, literally. It's translated here to test you, but it's for our testing. That is a test or a temptation. This word can mean either, can be translated either way. A test or a temptation so just like in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter here connects suffering to fire. There in chapter 1, the fire refines our faith. Remember that? It refines our faith. It is like a refining fire for precious metals. And there it refines our faith to make it valuable, to secure our reward in the end. Here, the fire of trial divides 
The fiery trial of persecution, think of it this way, the fiery trial of persecution is a watershed. The fiery trial will turn you from Jesus if it can. Or it will confirm you as truly belonging to him. Like the old saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It's what persecution is. It's what this fiery trial does. And if you truly belong to Jesus and his people, then suffering rejection is to be expected. Face it without surprise. You could put it another way. You could look at it from the other end and you could say it this way and it would be true also. If you are willing to suffer rejection because of Jesus' name, it is a confirming sign that you truly belong to him. That you really are a Christian. That you're a believer. So let us face the fiery trial without surprise. Jesus told us it would happen. God's people have always been under the gun, so to speak. I've always been persecuted. And Jesus told us they hated me first. Let's rejoice. That's verse 13. And it is the second point this morning. Let us face the fiery trial with joy. Let us face the fiery trial with joy. This is a command in verse 13. But rejoice. Rejoice. So not only don't be surprised, but rejoice. Take joy in this fiery trial. Rejoice in it because you share in Christ's sufferings. Notice, we don't just imitate Christ in his sufferings. We share in his sufferings. You and I partake of the same sufferings, the same rejection, the same hostility that Jesus faced. The world's hatred of Jesus is not being repeated like a pattern. Listen to me. It is not being repeated over and over again. The world's hatred of Jesus is continuing like a ripple down through history. And when it hits us, it is the natural ripple of the world's hatred of Jesus that you experience. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's discipleship. It's what it means to follow him. To take up your cross means to submit to the same suffering, death, that Jesus suffered. That is losing your life. Jesus makes a promise. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It'll be kept which is what Peter's going to talk about here in a minute. But Peter says here, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You partake in his sufferings as the hatred for him ripples down through history. For this reason, not that we just glory in suffering for suffering's sake, no, but that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, Peter, right? Eternity. He's pointing us to the end. His glory is revealed when he returns to judge the world, which means salvation and reward for his people. So there is a joy that we will know when Jesus returns, and that joy produces joy now. If that sounds a little abstract, think about Christmas time. Think about the excitement that you felt. If you don't get excited about Christmas anymore, think about it when you were young. Think about the excitement you felt anticipating Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, whenever you would open presents. You knew 
that you were going to have joy, that it was going to be great to open those presents, see what they were, begin to play with them or wear them or set them up or build them. You knew that that was going to be exciting. And so even a week away, you were already feeling what? Joy. You were anticipating it. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, you know that when Jesus returns, there is going to be glory. There is going to be reward. There is going to be final transformation. There is going to be deliverance. Even though you cannot see him now, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, you love him and you long for his return. That's what Peter's saying. The joy you know you will have gives you joy right now. Because even if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed in that the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. What does he mean that the spirit of, God, of glory and God rests upon you? Well, this is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of God, and God's very nature is glory. What does he mean when he says he rests upon you, though? Well, first of all, he's talking about he empowers you. He strengthens you to endure the fiery trial of hostility. This is hostility for Jesus' sake, watch, without withdrawing and without compromising. And when you don't withdraw and when you don't compromise, the very spirit of God and glory rests on you. So it's empowering. It gives you endurance. It also means he's present means the Holy Spirit is with you. He rests upon you. God's presence not only empowers you, but identifies you as belonging to him. And so his resting upon you secures you for that last day. The Spirit's presence upon you means glory. His presence is a deposit of glory in your life. And so you are never abandoned. We are never abandoned. No matter how hot the fiery trial becomes, you are never alone. Never for a moment are you without the help of God's Spirit. That's His promise. It's also true that you are never to conclude that you are suffering because of God's displeasure with you or his departure from your life. We feel that sometimes, don't we? Even Jesus knew that experience. What did Jesus say while he was hanging on the cross? My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. We feel that. I think that's why Peter says it. So that we go back to the word. We go back to this text. And we bank our life on it. That when we face hostility and we don't withdraw and we don't compromise, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. That's the real blessing of faithfulness in the face of hostility. That's the real source of joy, is that the presence of God now, that we know by faith, even if we don't always feel it, ensures that joy which is to come when he returns. So let us face the fiery trial with joy. Thirdly, let us face the fiery trial as the beginning of the end, as the beginning of the end. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, Peter has already hit on this. He is saying it again, that we are to be suffering for the right reasons. Fiery trial doesn't apply to being imprisoned for embezzling money. Fiery trial doesn't apply to getting a ticket for driving recklessly. Or even Peter says here, being a meddler. It's kind of murderer, thief, meddler. Almost seems out of place. I think Peter's making a point. Meddler. He's not referring to a crime here. He's not ref- being a meddler isn't something necessarily against the Roman law or the law of our land. But it means to interfere, to stir up dissension. Peter is saying you shouldn't be You should not be suffering a fiery trial because you behave in a way toward unbelievers that creates unnecessary offense. That creates hostility and friction, not because of the love of Jesus and the holiness of what it means to be his people, but because you're obnoxious. Or because you're, you're always trying by some method to push something. For example, being condescending in our moral claims. We have to draw the line. We have to say, that's wrong. That's sin. We cannot do that. We cannot condone that. We will not bow. We will not worship the false gods. But when we say it with condescension and a sneer because somehow the world is beneath us because they don't get the truth and we're the elect exiles, that's meddling. That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about being tactless and sharing the gospel instead of being sensitive and caring, being concerned for the well-being and the souls and the eternity of the people that don't know Christ, that don't believe in him. He's talking about using manipulative methods to somehow induce conversions. Well, there are plenty of religious showmen who fall into this category, this meddler category. And the world's distaste And the world's mockery for those kinds of methods, that's deserved. Because those methods undermine the gospel. They do not qualify as being persecuted and receiving God's blessing. That is not suffering as a Christian, verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer the consequences of stealing anger, being obnoxious, being manipulative, being condescending, that shame is appropriate. And you know what? God will use that. God will use that in your life to shape you if you're a Christian and you fall into that. But that is not the fiery trial. If you suffer because of Christ, do not be ashamed So that's the implication you see. If you suffer for these other reasons, the shame is deserved. But if you suffer because of Christ, do not be ashamed. Instead, stay the course. Stay the course and continue to bring God glory by your faithfulness to Christ. It is actually urgent that we do so. This is verse 17. Peter explains why this is so important. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This is one of those difficult statements that Peter makes. Because if you're a Christian, you should immediately think, now, wait a second. 
I thought that being a Christian meant not facing God's wrath, not facing God's judgment. I thought that what the Bible taught us is that Jesus' death atoned for my sin and that I'm forgiven and I am made right with God. And you were right. That is exactly what the Bible says. Otherwise, this wouldn't be a difficult statement. For example, in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, just to reinforce this truth. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, made right before God by the blood of Jesus, his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus' justification of you, making you right before God in the, the courtroom of God, means that you will not face God's final wrath. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you were found in Christ Jesus, you cannot be condemned because Jesus has been vindicated. He died. He's risen from the grave. He has ascended to the right hand of God. He has pleased the Father in every way. And he has purchased forgiveness. And when you are found in him, there's no condemnation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Can't be any clearer than that is fundamental Christian faith right there. So what does Peter mean then? What does Peter mean that judgment begins at the household of God? Well, to be judged doesn't necessarily mean to be punished. Sometimes the word is used that way. Judgment means punishment. But very often, the word to be judged means to appear before the judge, to undergo judgment, whether that means being condemned or acquitted, vindicated. Judgment is not just punishment, but it is the process of separating the righteous from the wicked. In fact, the word for judge means literally to divide. And so a judge is someone who divides a matter, who cuts through a matter, a problem, a case. A judge is someone who's able to divide what is false from what is true, what is inaccurate from accurate, and then cast a judgment of condemnation or vindication. That's what judging is. Let me give you a couple of examples, even from the New Testament. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching. He is preparing the way for the Messiah, and he's baptizing many. And there are all kinds of people coming to him, Luke tells us, including Roman centurions, soldiers. And everybody is asking, well, how, how can we repent? We want to be ready for the coming king. They're believing John's words. And in verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's the purpose of this fire? Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. This is an agricultural picture that John is using, one that everybody standing there on the banks of the Jordan River would have understood, that the threshing floor was a place where all of the harvested wheat was dumped, and it was used, the winnowing fork was an instrument, a tool that was used to separate the wheat which was valuable, which was sustenance, food, from the chaff, 
which was just the, the, the husks or the, the shells of the wheat kernels, the waste. That, that was a process. It's threshed out on the threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What John was saying is when, when the Messiah comes, when the one who is greater than me comes right behind me, he will judge, he will divide humanity. He will divide those who belong to him and go into the barn. That's the reward. That's the salvation from the fire which consumes the chaff. That's why later on, John the Baptist in prison would ask the question, is he really the Messiah? Will you go? He tells his followers, his disciples, go check it out. Ask if he's the Messiah because I don't see him threshing anybody yet. John the Baptist is waiting for that. I'll give you another example, Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus teaching, and he's, he's explaining to his disciples what's, what's going to happen. Now, they don't know how soon this is going to happen. For all they know, it could be the next day, because Jesus is there with them. He says in Matthew 25, 31, Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Nations, ethnicities, peoples, languages, everybody. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He will separate them out. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skipping to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this is judgment. This is the final judgment of all humanity. And this is the judgment as Peter uses it. Now, Here's what Peter means when he says it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. He means that the process of judgment, the process of separating the righteous from the wicked has already begun. It's already started. The persecution of God's people is God's process, not the world's process. It is God's process of separating out those who truly belong to him. This fiery trial presents the opportunity for every person to either keep allegiance with Jesus or abandon it. Because you see, we live in the last days. We live in the last days. And the world's hostility to Christ and his people shows that the end has already begun. You're already living in the end, do you understand? This has all been prepared since the foundation of the world. Isn't that what Jesus just said in Matthew 25? Suffering evil for the name of Christ is the beginning of the end because God is already sorting out humanity. That's what Peter means. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So this is not condemnation for us as God's people. This is hope. God is already beginning to put you into the barn, to use John the Baptist's words in Luke chapter 3. He is already beginning to move you to his right-hand side, to use Jesus' image in Matthew 25. Peter understands that we live at the end. It may be another 
500 years. It may be another millennium. But we live at the end, and God is already in the process of separating. Which explains Peter's next words. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if you don't understand what Peter means when he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, what you say is, man, if, if, we're not even, if we can't even be confident before God that we're going to make it and we're his people because we're coming under his judgment, how much worse is it going to be for the world? But if you understand what Peter means when he says judgment, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, meaning that God is already separating us out to himself, out from the world. And the persecution is the fiery trial, the winnowing fork that he's already begun this process with. Then what Peter is saying next is if, if we must undergo a fiery trial to be separated out, how much worse is the fire going to be for those who don't end up in the barn? For those who don't end up on the right-hand side of God, but on the left-hand side. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If we must pass through a fiery trial to be separated out, to, be, to undergo the winnowing fork on the threshing floor, then what about those who aren't going to make it? It's a warning. It is comfort to the people of God. That even though it seems like a fiery trial, it's painful right now. God is separating you out. The judgment has already begun in that way. And it is a warning to those who will not repent, who won't embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. How much worse will it be for you? If those who belong to God experience fiery trial to be separated out, how much it will be worse for those on the other side of the divide? The persecution that we face it's just a proof of how awful God's wrath on the unbeliever will be. So understand then what this fiery trial really is. It is the beginning of the end. And we need to face it that way. It's the beginning of the end. Lastly, let us face the fiery trial while doing good. Let us face the fiery trial while doing good. Verse 19. Therefore... If this is the beginning of the end, if God has already begun the process of separating his people out through the fiery trial of persecution, suffering evil, then let those who suffer according to God's will, those who are really suffering for Jesus' sake, for righteousness' sake, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator. This word entrust is a banking term. And it referred to uh, depositing something valuable for safekeeping. Much like we would use a safe deposit box or a fireproof safe. Maybe you have one of those at home. We put pictures or that terabyte with all of our digital pictures and our wills and these kinds of important documents in there. So then in case of fire or some other natural disaster, those things will make it. Or like I said, maybe you have a safety deposit box somewhere that's fireproof, you know, kept somewhere. So what Peter's saying, he's saying, entrust to God your soul, your life, your well-being, your eternity. Even if your physical life is afflicted here, even if your physical life is taken here, God preserves your life. Safe, safely kept by a faithful creator. This is the only place in the New Testament where the title creator is applied to God. And it talks about him creating all things, but the title itself, creator. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. He who safe keeps your soul, your life. So no matter how great the fiery trial is, the one who created you possesses the knowledge and the authority over the universe 
to preserve you, to keep you as his own. Who else is trustworthy? Nobody. Only God can do that. And trust him. If your soul is secure then, then you are free for doing good, even in the face of hostility, even in the fiery trial. Let us face the fiery trial while doing good. Here it is, once again, what Peter has been saying throughout his letter. This is what it looks like when we don't withdraw and we don't compromise. It means living in the world and in the face of the fiery trial, we continue doing good. We're free to do that, you see, because our life is already lost. We've already taken up the cross. What can the world take from someone who's already died? What can the world take from somebody who's already given up everything? And if you haven't, you're not a disciple. You're not a Christian. That isn't extra Christianity. That's not some extra tier of spirituality. That is fundamental. That's what it means to be a Christian. Start to count your life loss, everything you own. Everywhere you're going, all your plans, all your dreams. The world can't take anything from us. So let us face the fiery trial while doing good, not withdrawing and not compromising. In Psalm 31, King David records for us his own prophetic experience. And remember that as King David experiences these things and then writes them by the power and wisdom of the the Spirit of God, he is giving us an eternal type to follow. Not only to follow, but to adhere to as we experience what he experiences in Psalm 31. Psalm 31, beginning in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read portions. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Does that verse sound familiar? Because Jesus quotes this verse when he hangs on the cross. And by the way, when Jesus on the cross says, I commit into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. That word commit is the same word Peter uses in chapter 4, entrust. I entrust to you my spirit. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Verse 13. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in the shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. 
but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. And Lord, today, we are your people in exile in a besieged city. And we may not feel the intensity of the heat of the fiery trial every day. We have it good. And Lord, that too is part of your plan, whatever it might be, that we have been able to flourish and worship in a place and in a time in the history of mankind with freedoms intact when Christianity and high morals have been respectable. Lord, we see that eroding and it is because of the eternal wisdom, the divine nature of your word, especially in the letter of 1 Peter, that we can see the erosion in our culture, the growing hostility toward the Christian faith and its moral absolutes and its exclusive claims that Jesus is Lord, that we can see that and say, yeah, we've been ready for that. It has not taken us by surprise. And Lord, that we can entrust ourselves to you and continue to do good without withdrawing, without compromise, because we know that it is the beginning of the end. That the veil between now and the eternal is so very thin. And that it is only our limits as creatures, as people, that hinders us from seeing how close eternity is, how imminent your return is and your glory and reward. It feels so far off, but you call us again and again to live on the edge of the now and what has not yet come. And we know it will help us to live faithfully, in your name we ask all of these things, amen.